It's Tuesday, November 14th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions in Israel. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. If you want to understand the trauma of the Israelis, I don't just direct you to Ben Zeman, who serves in the Israeli military's rabbinate division. So he takes in the bodies, he identifies them, prepares them, purifies them. The trauma isn't in the number of bodies, which have been over a thousand from the day he started last month. The trauma isn't in this self-described sensitive guy whose job it was to handle so many bodies. The trauma may be best understood in what could not be understood. So most of Ben's colleagues couldn't continue on with their job. They weren't trained or prepared for what they saw on October 7th. So they did what they say you should do. They talked about their trauma, the trauma they couldn't process, even though it was their job. They talked about it with people for whom talking about it was their jobs. And here's what Ben's colleagues found. Close to half of my friends couldn't, couldn't take anymore. One of them actually went to a psychologist two weeks ago, and after 20 minutes he said, I'm really sorry, I can't, I can't help you. I can't hear your, your stories. You'll have to find someone else. Who else? Everyone else in this country of 10 million. Ben is a rabbi, a member of the military, an Israeli. He lived for a time in the U.S., Memphis, Tennessee, not Egypt, and he says that he was able to do this job better than most. So we were there standing in a cold, cold room with a wooden platform about a foot and a half off the floor. It was draped with an Israeli flag. There was a wreath on it. Ben has laid body after body on this platform, and he says he didn't cry for many days. From the Sunday after the attack through Thursday, Ben said he didn't cry, and then... My son was like playing hide and seek, and he, he sort of covered himself with, uh, with, with a sheet, basically. And I just burst out crying. This is a country both at the limits of their mental capacity, yet, in a way, totally focused. No one I talk to differs on this one conviction. They say the war must be won. Hamas must be brought to justice, which means destroyed. But there's this other thing that I have never seen in any society. On the one hand, you have national unity behind a national cause. That happens. That happens in a time of war. But also, to a person, there is this belief, this knowledge, that once the objectives are met, the very leader in charge of what will have been a successful mission, that leader must go. So many, many people are so very upset, livid, with Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister. They're of the firm belief the leader in charge of this war needs to go. Now, perhaps you've heard of Major General Noam Tiban. In a country of heroes, he's one of the most prominent. He's a 62-year-old retired major general, and Tiban got the call from his son on October 7th. His son lives in a kibbutz near Gaza. We are under attack from terrorists. The WhatsApp message said, stay in the safe room. I will come, said the father. And so he went, drove down 70 miles from Tel Aviv. He saved, his wife was with him. They saved many others who were under attack. They fought alongside forces they met along the way. And as he told 60 Minutes, eventually they entered his son and grandchildren's kibbutz. He relied on his training. He acted methodically. Basically, the Hamas was in control. And, they, you know, we start to get in. 
and we saw bodies, some of them terrorists, some Israelis. On this situation, you have to, to work very, very focused. Okay, you have to clean one house, and then go to the next house, and then go to the next house, because if you run too fast, they will shoot you from the behind. Tabone wound up saving his son, his daughter-in-law, his granddaughters. He has become a household name, though he was well-known before. And what does Noam Taban say from this place of respect? How does this national hero use his credibility to say that Netanyahu has to go? He will lead the war effort, Taban told me, and then he must go. Echoing that was Nadav Argaman, the former head of Shin Bet, which is Israel's intelligence service. There are three reasons for the intelligence failure the country saw on October 7th, says the man who is Benjamin Netanyahu's appointee from 2016 to 2021. There was the failure to convince the right people of Hamas's cruel intentions. There was the avoidance of responsibility. There was the fracturing of Israeli civil society. And the blame for all three, it goes on the shoulders of his former boss. Argument has a pretty creative plan to maybe one day reconstitute Gaza as a man-made island out in sea. It's amazing what they do with this kind of technology these days. Debate that if you wish, he says. Netanyahu's culpability, beyond debate. So Dan Senor, the former Bush administration official, is out with a book called The Genius of Israel. I'll give away what the genius is. It's solidarity. It's a country where the government does not work well for the people, but social ties surmount that. And I've seen that over and over since I've been here. In a way, the most polarizing presence is the prime minister. And he has shown guile and cunning. He can play the factions off each other. But now there's no more factionalization. The factions are gone. There's solidarity, which may seem to an outsider to be, oh, a people united under a leader, under Netanyahu. In fact, I think they're uniting right through him. We'll see. There is a war to fight. There is a nation to heal. There is a world to appeal to while knowing that that's almost impossible. So in the next few days, I aim to bring you different stories of Israel and Israelis. But someone said to me, what's the one thing we're not understanding here in America? What's the thing that strikes you? And the trauma is heavy and the war aims are large and the war efforts are ongoing, seemingly successful. But at the same time, the more success there is military, the more costs there are in terms of public opinion and world opinion. That's all true. It's all interesting. I think to large degrees, it's what America knows. I found it very interesting to see the disconnect of this unified people under a leader who they need to execute their greatest aim, but they also are convinced is most responsible for their worst moment. So first up, Today's interview will be with a warrior turned activist, now turned problem solver. Gigi Levy-Weiss was in the streets a few months ago, using his status as a pilot to argue against the proposed judicial overhaul that I've talked about on this show, that Netanyahu composed, that almost brought Israel to its knees. Now, Levy-Weiss is helping to overhaul the logistical apparatus needed for a society-wide mobilization I was interested in how he's doing that 
and how a society so completely transforms. A society that wasn't so dissimilar to ours when it comes to being at each other's throats. What can happen to change that circumstance? Gigi Levy-Weiss, up next. Gigi Levy-Weiss is affiliated with a group called Brothers in Arms. The Hebrew name is Achim Leneshek. And this group, perhaps you heard about them as I covered the protests in Israel over reforms of the judiciary. These were members of the military who essentially said, not my name. I want to serve for a society that is governed by rule of law. And they saw what elements in the Netanyahu government were doing and were steering the government. And they said, this is not what Israel should be. So they took to the streets. They used all of their power of protest and what is fascinating is that story, but what happened on October 7th and what happened to the group. Gigi, welcome to The Jest. Thank you for having me. And because people are going to want to know, Gigi is Gigi. It's not short for anything. <laughs> Gigi is short for Gigi Gigi. No, but it's actually it's Gigi, yes. That's good. So what did you? what's your military role? What do you do in the military? Uh, I used to be an Air Force pilot. I flew Apaches uh, most of my career. And... Were when the changes, when the proposed changes um, were made, where were you in your military career and what were your thoughts on that initiative? So in January this year, earlier this year, um, I was uh, already way after my military career. Uh, after my military career, I became a tech founder, founded six companies, and then became an investor, invested in more than 150 companies, then had my VC, did a lot of things, but in January this year, when we heard about the proposed changes and the hit on Israel democracy, uh, we decided that this is something that we've got to stop. And so already in January, we wrote the first letter telling the government that we think that's a bad idea, that's going to hurt Israeli high-tech, that's going to hurt Israeli military. And then for 10 months, up till October 7th, essentially, uh, we were busy in trying to stop these proposed changes that were really undermining Israel's democracy. So tell me, Americans, you know, obviously an officer and a gentleman. We, uh, Top Gun, we hold pilots in high regard. We hold officers in somewhat high regard. But I'm not sure they get the sense of where people of your ilk are in Israeli society. Can you give me a sense of that? Especially since everyone serves in Israel. Yeah, you've got to remember that in Israel, everybody that reaches the age of 18 needs to serve in the army, uh, military, that is, and uh, of that, there are some special forces and some units that are perceived to be more high status. Of that in Israel, the Air Force is considered to be one of the top status places in Israel. Uh, I would say that the Apache pilots are at the top, but then maybe others would say differently. Um, but generally speaking, uh, when you look at the ranks of Israel businesses and Israel government and everywhere else, you'd see that people that, are, that were senior and had top roles in the military generally the military is a good predictor of what you're going to continue doing in your life. So what was the effect of Air Force pilots coming out and making the stance that you made and that the brothers in arms and brothers and sisters in arms made? So I, th I think that, uh, you know, of all the things that the various protest organizations did, and there were around the 200 of them, different ones. You know, we had ones of uh, physicians and we had one of, uh, of lawyers and one of ex-government officials and a bunch of others. But the one of the pilots was super material simply because at the end of the day, the pilot said, you know, it's going to be very hard to ask us to continue fighting 
aggressively for the country if this is not going to be a democracy. Now, we're clearly, when, when there's a real problem like we had on October 7th, everybody came and, and, and fought. Well, and I do want to get to that, but yes. Yeah, there was not a problem. But generally speaking, the saying was, if you want to have a military that's going to really be as strong as the Israeli military is, you need to remember that we're only fighting because we're a democracy. I mean, when you think about the Russian military today, you know, a very strong military on paper, when you look at what's happening there, when they're not fighting for democracy, where they don't believe in their cause, you actually, it doesn't matter how much money you're putting into it, that's a weak military. And the reason why the Israeli military is strong is because at the end, at the end of the day, this is a concept that we all believe in. And if Israel is not going to be a democracy, we said, it's going to be super hard to continue having the same concept and therefore a strong military. Right. So if the Supreme Court wasn't going to have the power to rule laws unconstitutional forever, uh, for instance, that erodes a democracy. Now, tell me if this has been accurately reported. Reservists were saying it got to the point where Air Force pilots were saying we were not going to be called up if we were called up. We were not going to respond to that. I think the saying was that at the end of the day, this is going to erode the power of the military and the Air Force. It's part of that. I think people said that, you know, we as reservists, we volunteer. We don't need to. You can't force somebody to be a pilot. When, when they're in active duty, that's one thing. When you are 40 and you're a reservist, it's a volunteering thing. You, you don't need to do that. You can stop whenever you want. That's, that's the law in Israel. And so people said, you know, we're risking our lives. We're getting away from our kids. We're getting away from our families. We may not come back. If we're doing that, that's because we believe in the country. And this is not about, you know, the, the court system being stronger or not. This is about the, a very concise and precise attack on the court system from various directions, controlling the election of judges, controlling what could be criticized by the judiciary, controlling, um, you know, controlling things like uh, what can and cannot be criticized at all. And all of these things combined were leading to a very weak democracy, not just by our opinion, but the opinions of constitutional law experts. And we said this will eventually get reservists to not want to serve. And so we were warning against that. And this was your cause and you put your credibility on the line and it was a fight and it was not settled. And then the terrorist attacks of October 7th happened. And I'm sure on a personal level, you lost people, you knew people who would certainly be called up. But what does the group do? What is what discussion is had among the brothers in arms? Yeah, so I think I think the first important thing to say is that at the end of the day, when you look at what really happened with reservists, so the 7th of October happened, and the the attendance, like the show up of reservists in Israel was 140%, which means that despite everything, when real danger came to be, nobody was asking questions. So 140% means everyone who was eligible to be called up or to volunteer did, and then more people who had left the reserves did. More than 40%, not the people that left in the last 10 months, but 40 people in general. We've had people that showed up and the unit sent them back. The unit said, we don't need you, you're too old, you're not relevant. And they said, no, we want to stay, we want to volunteer. So there was literally zero risk of people not showing up when the real risk presented itself. Right. That's one thing. The second thing is that, uh, you know, between our different organizations, the high, the Brothers in Arms and what what's called the high-tech protest was another another organization that I was part of the people that started. Uh, we had around 120,000 volunteers. Of these around 40%, 45% are in actually in, re, in actual active reserve duty right now. Okay. But what happened is that already on the, on the, on Saturday the 7th, Many of the people that were not called to reserve immediately got together and said, how can we help? 
how can we change what's happening right now? And already on the 7th, we've had teams of, of ex-infantry people, senior people, that went out and tried to help and help civilians that were left behind in the Gaza envelope. And so already on that day, we've had hundreds of people that were taken out of the Gaza envelope under fire in some cases, uh, as the military was not in control yet of everything that had happened. And then that evening, we, we had a discussion between ourselves and we said, well, the world of fighting against the government is now changed. Instead of fighting the government, we need to now put everything we've put together in order to be able to fight the external enemy. And so already that evening, we, we started deciding, thinking what we could do together. Sunday morning, we already were there, tens of people. And by noon, we've had hundreds. By night, more than a thousand. And we decided that we're going to work all together to try and help the country to do both two things. The first thing is to essentially help the IDF win. Now, we're not as soldiers, but helping the military and everything that we could. And then helping all the civilians that were affected by the terror attack and the subsequent war, everything from the families of the victims, the family of the injured people, the families of the hostages, all the way to the people that were dislocated. I mean, people don't know, but there's around 200,000 people that were dislocated. In U.S. terms, that's like, you know, if you multiply it, that's like, you know, close to 10 million people that were dislocated from their homes. And all of these things, you know, really impact society. We decided that we want to help with that as well. So we put everything that we have, the, all the logistics, the volunteers, and everything we've had in place to actually help in all of that. Because you folks, and it's no, it's no longer Brothers in Arms. What's the new name of the organization in English? We now call it Brothers and Sisters for Israel. Brothers and Sisters for Israel. You have a lot of skill. You have a lot of know-how. You have a lot of logistical capability. You have a lot of contacts. You're very good at this. In fact, I took a tour of your facility today. You do say you are probably better than the government at much of this. This is not about us saying that we're better, but this is about just being as good as we can be. And at the end of the day... That was an old slogan with the U.S. Army, by the way. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and this is about us, you know, the combination of the senior people from Israeli military that bring operational skills and, uh, you know, the, the can-do attitude that gets us to be able to do everything, combined with the skill and scale of Israeli tech. And the well, give, me, give, me a sen- give me a sense of the scale. How big are some of these operations that you've undertaken? So we're generally now operating around 15,000 people a day. I mean, I've created companies that were that size in the past, but I've never created anything that scaled to 15,000 people in less than a week, right? Like usually even in a tech startup, you don't even get the chairs by a week. And so, you know, we started working immediately. We immediately put in a tech system uh, by a great company called Monday.com, a publicly traded company that mm-hmm. came and implemented their system in the first day. We've immediately taken some of the more senior people in Israeli tech uh, and some of the more senior people out of Israeli military, ex-military, to come and run the different divisions of what we're doing. Uh, we immediately thought about how we, can we make an impact of scale. And, you know, it all started by taking requests bottom-up. So requests from soldiers, requests from units, requests from civilians. Uh, and then, you know, the government started an understanding that we can move mountains. So they came with us re- with, to us with requests also top-down. Top and basically, you know, we took everything that we had, which is the people, the logistic capabilities, money that we've had available, and, and these top talented people, and we started moving mountains. So everything from, you know, we got asked to feed soldiers at the beginning. Uh, you know, we, we recruited more than 350,000 soldiers, which is uh, the largest number Israel recruited in decades. And so for the first few weeks, we fed like 30,000 soldiers every day. We brought top chefs out of Tel Aviv. We gave them groceries. We helped them with everything. And we fed around 30,000 people. That was one extreme thing. 
Another extreme, we drove soldiers to their units because at the beginning that was hard to do. Um, at the first uh, few weeks, we did the missing person center because we figured out that there were lots of people that didn't know who to call. Uh, the police was still not functioning well. The military was not functioning well. And so we put in place uh, a center that was run by Professor Karina On with around 400 people per shift where everybody that had a missing person could call, provide data and get data about yeah. the missing people. So you had the list. There was, I don't know if there was an official list, but you were, your group was keeping the de facto list and you would track down people who had gone overseas or who were perhaps dead or who were missing. And the official list is largely an outgrowth of your group's effort. Oh, completely. We, we even went all the way as to uh, have three machine vision teams that compared the, the photos and movies out of the Hamas and compared them to the actual photos of the missing people so that we can find out whether somebody's actually in the hands of the Hamas. And then after a week and a half, the government managed to set up a team of their own. We worked in parallel for another week and a half, and then we gave them uh, everything that we did, like the software and the data and everything, and they took it over. Generally speaking, we're not trying to compete with the government. The minute that the government arrives, we'll hand everything over and only continue if they want to. Well, us. maybe not the minute in this case, right? Like, not yeah. the very minute with the missing people. No, you're, you're totally right, because many we would immediately say we're happy to move it over, but in most cases, they would say, continue running for a while until we're set up, and then we'll take it. We'll be back in a second with Gigi Levy-Weiss. And we're back with Gigi Levy-Weiss. Let us now rejoin the conversation. So I would not imagine there was much contention, even with this group that was born of contention. I wouldn't imagine there was much of a debate. Do we really unite and uh, work together to help the country? I mean, did, that pretty much went without saying after this, right? I think that there probably are still a few politically minded people that would think that getting help from us is problematic. But this is like a, a very tiny percentage of the people that we're working with. Yeah. We're now working with, uh, you know, with government officials. We're working with municipalities, uh, some of which would be very much against the, the protest movement in the past. And I think that at the end of the day, there, you know, it's a mixture of two things. The first thing is that the level of polarization in Israel went down dramatically and the level of solidarity went up. That's one thing. And the second thing is that the proof's in the pudding. And at the end of the day, many of these people that were evacuated from their homes or that, you know, that needed help, we came and helped them. And, you know, we didn't do it to get their love. Um, it's a side effect. But at the end of the day, when they see that uh, the government's moving slow the way governments do. And when they see that we're coming and we're not asking them to denounce the government or say that they're against something, we're just helping them. Yeah. Eventually, that is part of the of the healing of the nation. So when you were in this fractious period during the summer and there were protests in the street and you were the most or among the most prominent organizations, if I had told you in a few months, everyone will be united, would you have guessed it possible? Or I'm thinking maybe knowing what you know about being Israeli, your mind would have said, well, there's only one way that would happen. Well, I, I, I have to admit that I don't think anybody thought that what happened on the 7th is possible. I think that, you know, the misconception, although there were lots of warning that things could happen, nobody really thought this will happen. And being that that's the case, we did think that 
hopefully the next election would get people to a more united and you know higher solidarity environment without without you know kind of hating each other uh, but I think it this presents a unique opportunity because it's like a reset event it's a horrible reset event it's one that I wish hadn't happened of course I lost uh, I lost four kids of friends and you know there's two uh, entrepreneurs whose kids are in Gaza that I know that are hostages and so I clearly you know I, I, I wish I could press a button and make it go away uh, now that it happened I think it presents a unique opportunity for Israel to go back to pre-polarization environment going back to a situation where we all think together about the best of the nation rather than think about politics and I really one of, one of my biggest concerns is that we really can't can't miss this opportunity. It's, it's such a unique opportunity, yeah. and you know, for the, to make sure that those that that, that died that were massacred would not die in vain, would need to be that you know we make this a better country, both on the military side and security side, but also on the internal side and on us being united together and not fighting each other. So I don't know how much you know about the United States, but we are an extremely polarized society. And because we're not a parliamentary system and it maps on to our just two never changing political parties, that adds to the polarization. And after 9-11, America did come together. But in the 20 something years since then, I think that we had a couple opportunities to do so and we didn't. And so I, th I look at what happened here and your group as an example, and I wonder if it could ever happen to America. And I say, I don't know because I don't even know that America would be vulnerable enough to have this existential threat. And so maybe that's that's the hinge and that's what it took, the existential threat. Look, I think that there's a bunch of things that people need to understand. The first thing is that this is like 9-11 being 45,000 dead. Yeah, this is not the, you know, this is not the same scale. This is much larger scale. Or I people. say it's like nine eleven if the whole country were New York City. Exactly, if everybody yeah. had New York yeah. in in their in their state. That's one thing. The second thing is that you need to understand that nine eleven was done by by around fifty to hundred terrorists altogether, including the planners. Yeah. Here we're talking about twenty five hundred terrorists crossing the border with the aim to massacre, you know, take hostages, rape, kill. And so this is this is really a different feeling. And then you also need to remember that the entire purpose of the state of Israel at the end of the day was to get to the point that Jews would not be taken out of their homes and massacred in front of their homes and that Jews could live in a country without the risk of ever thinking that something like this could happen. And now suddenly it's happening again. And so the level of shock that we're experiencing, the level of trauma is so much higher than I think 9-11 that while of course this is horrible and you know there's nothing positive about it i do think that it is possible that the trauma is so big that we can we, that we can come out of it more united than the united states came after 9-11 and for a longer period that's that's my hope i want to ask you maybe one or two more questions one that goes back before this um i was speaking with nadav argaman former head of shin bet and he pointed to three reasons why this happened. It was about Israeli avoidance. It was about Israeli complacency, but it was also about Israeli fractiousness. And he pointed to exactly the, uh, the judicial question that uh, lit a fire under your group. And he said that tore the country apart. And when I pressed him on it I'm asked to, and asked him, so what should Israel have done? Just either given into the right or the right should have given into the left. He just squarely said, 
he put the blame on Netanyahu. And he said that Netanyahu pushed it so far, and it wasn't an inherently fractious question. It was one that Netanyahu pushed. Now, I don't know if you don't want to get into it at this point in your life, but do you... I don't don't have a problem getting it. The first thing I think that it is, uh, while I have very strong political opinions, I think it is fair to say that we now know that the preparation for the attack started way before the judiciary reform. Right. And so in that, I think that whatever you can think about the reform and the protest that came with it, at the end of the day, it was a small part of the Hamas's decision to actually, actually maybe a part of the timing, but it was not the reason why they started. That's one thing. And that's important to say. The second thing is that I think that at the end of the day, when people used to ask me who's to blame, I always had one simple answer, and that was, if the government stopped with the reform or what we call the revolution, do you think the protest would stop? And then on the other hand, if the protest stopped, do you think the reform would stop? And I think it's very clear that if we stop protesting, the reform would just pass and the democracy would be undermined. On the other hand, if the reform stopped, I'm sure I would, I would have stopped going to the streets. Yeah, and it's clear who was the actor and who was the reactor. And yeah, by design, the government is always the reactor in, in a democracy, right? The government has all the power. Yes. We're trying to we're trying to change opinions by by going to the street, but we don't make make the the actual uh, the actual moves and so there's no question and now i don't think that the the judiciary reform is the reason you know the hamas is the reason and the misconception on intelligence is the reason why we're not ready and lots of other things but at the end of the day in terms of weakening the country in the last year that's definitely the very aggressive thinking of undermining democracy in a very nasty manner you know it's not about you know this was this was like a constitutional change that you should take opinion on from everybody you should do it slowly you should have committees you should present it you should hear opinions you shouldn't just come less than a month after the election and say we're changing everything you know it's like somebody coming after immediately after the election let's say that somebody got enough power after the election remember in israel you, all you had to do is 50.1 percent you didn't even need two-thirds like the united states and so somebody coming and saying, okay, I just got what I need. I'm going to change constitution 100% without thinking, without asking anybody, without consulting, without consulting experts, without consulting universities, nothing. I'm just going to change it. And that's what they did. And I think that that, in retrospect, I think also many people from the government admit that was irresponsible. Not necessarily responsible as in that's why the Hamas came. I don't think that's, I don't think that's the reason. That's unfair to say. But I do think that weakened Israel and that took the eyes off the ball in the wrong way that maybe would not have changed anything, but definitely did not help. Do you envision a time when what is brothers and sisters for Israel becomes the more inherently political group that it once was? And will that be a good thing or a bad thing? I think that our hopes is that following um, the the current stage of war, uh, we're going to get to the point that everybody that's to blame for what happened is going to take responsibility and and step, step down. We think that that needs to be everything from people in the military all the way up to the prime minister. I don't think that there, that anybody gets away from that. And I think that then we'd like to see a new system. Then in this new system, um, hopefully some people that were part of the protest are going to step up and want to go into politics. Many others will not. That's also fine. And we're hopefully going to have a new politics that's not going to go around polarization. And that's not going to focus on the things of the past, but it's going to focus on rebuilding what we call today Israel 3.0 which is going to be in Israel with more solidarity, less polarization, and a more united vision of the future that takes away a lot of the fight that we've had before. 
Gigi Levy-Weiss, Air Force major, entrepreneur, and Brothers and Sisters for Israel co-founder. Safe to say. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me.